Hello everyone, this is Zach Bissett, Assistant Web Editor for Journal of Clinical Pathways, joined by my colleague Cameron Kelsell, Associate Editor of the Journal. Our guest today is Dr. Natalie S. Callender, MD, Department of Hematology and Oncology at the University of Wisconsin Cancer Center. We'll be talking to Dr. Callender about her presentation at the latest NCCN Congress on Hematologic Malignancies regarding individualized treatment for patients with relapse or refractory multiple myeloma. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Callender. Patients with multiple myeloma frequently relapse or become refractory to treatments for the disease. What are some of the considerations that physicians need to take into account when determining further treatment options for relapse or refractory patients? Well, there, there are some basic rules, as, as many people perhaps listening to this know, there are lots of talks out there right now about how to treat relapsed multiple myeloma, and I think partly that's a reflection of how complicated this has become as a reflection, I think in part because we're doing so much better and people are living longer, and then it also has to do with the fact that we have a lot more treatment choices than we ever used to have. And I think it's, but I think it's also confusing for people to try to sort of figure out what, what in fact we should be doing. So there are some really basic considerations uh, of how to approach this. And the first is, in my opinion, what kind of relapse you're dealing with. And uh, the International Myeloma Working Group uh, put out some guidelines uh, a while ago that were published in Lancet Oncology in 2016. And basically, they tried to define relapse for myeloma and use some pretty standard definitions, certainly for clinical relapse where people have, say, a new bone lesion or, or a fracture, or if they have a new plasma cytoma, if they present with hypercalcemia or new anemia or other symptoms that are related to uh, progressive myeloma such as renal failure. And those, I think, are very straightforward in the sense that patients um, you know, clearly have a relapse, but then there are the more subtle relapses, what a lot of people have, are now terming biochemical progression. And this is a situation where patients really are asymptomatic, but they're starting to show elevations either of their monoclonal protein or their light chains, and you're starting to think, okay, should I do something or not? So, um, and there, there are some considerations for both groups, and certainly people who have a clinical relapse with a new event, I think most people feel that that person needs intervention, and, and it's not really to be debated. For the biochemical relapse, there are some more considerations about whether or not you think you could actually watch that patient for a while. And that's appropriate, I think, when people have what appears to be a more indolent and certainly a, a biochemical relapse. Um, the, some of the other considerations about what to do for a patient who's relapsed is, what was their myeloma like at the beginning? So patients typically who are uh, that uh, revised ISS stage 3 patients, those who have bad cytogenetic features or plasma cell leukemia, um, they tend to relapse very with a very aggressive relapse, and I think most people would agree that those aren't the patients that you are going to watch. They are certainly the patients that you're going to intervene upon, even if they just had a biochemical relapse for that group, because they just tend to be so refractory. I think some of the other considerations um, can be what what is the patient's uh, clinical performance status like now? Are they are they healthy? Are there other issues? Are they still recovering from side effects related to previous treatments? Um, apart from biochemical versus a clinical relapse, a lot of people really pay attention to how long was it since their last treatment. 
So if somebody is in the middle of receiving an aggressive triplet treatment, but they're progressing while you're treating them, that's a definitely a different situation than someone uh, who may have completed some therapy and maybe they were on nothing, just on observation, or maybe they were on uh, uh, even some low-dose maintenance and that, that has been ongoing uh, for some time. Um, the other the other issues can be uh, in in my state I live in a quite rural state. Um, if you're planning on therapy for relapse, what are the practical considerations like? Can the patient get to clinic? Okay. Um, do they have insurance coverage for some of the more expensive oral agents? Um, what you know what is their frailty like are they are they what we would consider a frail patient versus a more robust patient and even though this is somewhat of a long list i think all of these things have to be taken into account and maybe most importantly would be what's the availability for a clinical research trial that might be appropriate for this patient as well so i think those i think most people would take all of those factors into account how has the influx of newly available multiple myeloma therapeutic options complicated the treatment landscape? Well, I think you could look at it that way, or else you can say it's given you more opportunities. And I think um, if you sort of look at the progression of myeloma options over time, you know, we went through many, many years, essentially from about you know 1959 when or 58 when oral melphalan first came about, and oral cytoxin was available then. If you go all the way up to about um, you know 2000, if you will, uh, there's there's not a lot of choices there. There are, there were the alkylator agents. We had steroids. Interferon was being used. Um, anthracycline, such as doxorubicin, um, became popular when a uh, regimen uh, named VAD came out in the in the mid 1980s. So so there weren't a lot of options, but it it also meant that for patients relapsing, if they didn't respond to one of these interventions, you were sort of out of gas. Um, but then what happened with the publication in 1999 of the thalidomide data, uh, we had within a few years now three drugs, uh, three new drugs, uh, bortezomib, thalidomide, and, and lenalidomide to work with. But in the last, if you look at what's happened in the last, you know, um, uh, really, uh, Four years, it's really been way, way more than that. So we have carfilzomib, we have exazomib, we have pomalidomide, we have daratumumab, panabinistat, and elatuzumab. So we really have a lot more uh, regimens that we can consider. And so I think what, what does get a little difficult here that there are lots of different combinations that one can, one can consider, and I think you have to have a little bit of an idea in mind about how do you want to approach this. So I think um, one of the guidelines uh, from the NCCN is when you're looking at, uh, if, if you've decided a patient needs treatment, again, going back to that paradigm, how bad is the relapse? Is it, is it a refractory relapse? In other words, occurring within uh, uh, two months of treatment or are they on treatment at the time? I think most people would say, okay, that kind of aggressive relapse requires a triplet intervention. Um, whereas uh, a later relapse, perhaps a more indolent relapse, and particularly in a frail patient, you might be trying to use just a couple of agents. But again, you can look at all this drug availability and, says, and, and point out it gives you more treatment options rather than fewer. Now, I think um, given we now are in a position where there has been some uh, uh, early relapse 
phase three trials that give you some very, very, very strong data about what to do in that particular situation. So what I'm talking about are myeloma patients who may be at their first relapse. We do not think of them as particularly refractory yet. And um, these kinds of uh, trials are out there. That would include the ASPIRE trial, KRD versus RD. There is the um, uh, tourmaline trial, I IRD, exazomib, reblimidex versus RD. There is the Eloquent trial, elituzumab, RD versus RD. And then finally, Pollux, um, daratumumab, RD versus RD. And all of these trials gave uh, very strong signals that the triplet was better uh, in terms of both progression-free and, in some cases, overall survival. And I think most people, if a patient is not lenalidomide refractory, would consider um, uh, one of these for sure as an upfront combination. Um, and uh, if you are going just by response rate, at least what's published to date, the highest response rate of all is in that Pollux trial with that daratumumab. RD combination, which has about a 93% response rate, so it's quite it's quite strong. Um, if a patient is not able to get lenalidomide, then looking at combinations that use um, bortezomib, and this is again in an early relapse, there are a lot of good choices again. So you have the CASTOR trial, daratumumab, uh, bortezomib dexamethasone excuse me, versus uh, bortezomib dex, uh, panorama, panabinistat, velcadex versus velcadex. And then there is uh, currently some phase two data looking at elituzumab, velcadex. And of course, there's the Endeavor trial using um, carfilzomib dex versus velcadex. So again, those have some pretty reasonable data, perhaps not quite as strong as the uh, LEN-based regimens, but those would also be very reasonable for an early relapse. And that means that, that we're talking about patients who really have not manifested themselves to be terribly refractory at this point. So I think most people would say in a, uh, uh, a uh, relatively fit patient, those would be, uh, any of those eight, eight trials would be very good ones to um, consider. Uh, in terms of a starting point. And then how you break it down, I think you would say, you know, is a patient, have, do, do they have residual uh, neuropathy? Uh, do they have coverage for lenalidomide? Um, what's their transportation situation? Those kinds of considerations. But, but I think we have a lot of very strong data for the early relapses for these choices. Um, what's, what gets a little bit more difficult is beyond that, let's say you're talking about your second or third or fourth relapse, then what we really do lack is any sort of testing mechanism that could tell you this particular combination is going to work or this will not work because I think we all believe that these triplet combinations have synergy and that it's possible that if a person is resistant to one of the components of the triplets that they might be sensitive though to that combination. So we still are faced to a large extent looking at some trial and error when you're, when you're talking about a later relapse. And again, the patients do tend to be more refractory at that point and we're expecting usually then a shorter progression-free uh, interval as we go through these uh, series of, of therapies. What is the role of stem cell transplant within the new treatment landscape? Prior to some of these newer drugs that started to appear in 2013, um, one of the options that has been uh, present for a number of years has been a second autologous stem cell transplant. And that's feasible because Melphalan has 
very uh, well-known toxicities, and it does appear to be a drug, unlike some others, that you can repeat a second time and actually expect patients to get through that treatment okay. So the use of second transplants has been around for, um, excuse me, easily, easily more than a decade, but there really hadn't been any randomized data to say that this could be a reasonable approach. And so there was a study from the MRC group in, in Great Britain who published uh, follow-up data on their study in 2016, which is looking at a second autologous stem cell transplant for patients who had been at least 18 months out from their first transplant. Um, all of these patients were treated with a combination of bortezomib, doxorubicin, and dexamethasone, and then randomized to either that second autologous stem cell transplant or a maintenance treatment with oral cyclophosphamide. And they were able to show uh, that there was both a progression-free and overall survival advantage for patients going through that second transplant. Now, this particular study has been criticized because the uh, oral cyclophosphamide maintenance is not something that's typically used in the United States. However, I think most uh, uh, of the experts in the field of myeloma would say for a patient who's been through, been say two years or more out from their transplant, a second transplant can also be quite um, quite helpful. And one of the things that I really like about a second transplant, talking to patients about this, is two factors. One is it gives them usually an opportunity to then go perhaps onto a second sort of maintenance that can be uh, very, uh, very much uh, improving their quality of life. In other words, it's one thing to be coming in, say, once or twice a week for therapies that are effective, but it's still a lot of time. And if you can go through a second transplant and then be able to be on a very low intensity maintenance with very few clinic visits, I think everybody uh, really appreciates that. The second thing that I found and I think other people have in the field is that if you really have that patient who is quite refractory and maybe failing some of the other uh, proteasome inhibitor or other imid combinations that a second transplant can often in some way sort of reset the clock and get patients who have active disease back down to a level where it can be more manageable. Um, again, usually that interval between progression from the first transplant uh, versus progression from the second transplant um, is going to be shorter for the second, but I, I think it's still in, in the well-selected patients, this can be a very good strategy. Multiple myeloma has a five-year survival rate of approximately 50%. Is there reason to believe that this will improve in the coming years? Why or why not? Yeah, I think there's a lot of reason to believe that this is going to continue to improve, and um, uh, not even uh, you know six or seven years ago, when you looked at sort of the average progression after, say, a first autologous stem cell transplant, we would tell p patients, and, and the data would support somewhere around a two-year, um, two years before they might have progression. Um, looking at some of the long-term follow-up data from the CLGB trial. Uh, with a model of initial treatment followed by stem cell transplant followed by lenalidomide maintenance. Uh, in long-term follow-up, the, the average time or the median time for progression is right around four and a half years. So, you know, that's very encouraging. It means that patients are going to start off now with a lot, a lot longer interval. And what that means is that if they've been stable that long, typically at that first relapse, as I mentioned, we have these great 
you know, these choices now that can potentially put people back into a complete remission. And some of these uh, first relapse uh, combinations that I mentioned have response rates that approximate what you can see at diagnosis. So they are quite powerful. So we really think that we, we have strategies at the first relapse that we can get people back into a very deep response again. So that kind of strategy wasn't available uh, even, even shortly ago. I think the other thing that everybody is very excited about is there's going to be all sorts of new drugs that are coming about. Um, there are more antibody drugs in the works. Uh, there are uh, there is a drug antibody conjugate, conjugate uh, targeting B cell maturation ant antigen BCMA. There is a bite, or there's actually two bite antibodies under uh, investigation that uh, will hopefully bring together a patient's own T cells with a myeloma cell, sort of uh, uh, comp complementary or, or uh, sort of the same strategy uh, as the drug blinatumumab that's uh, approved for ALL. Uh, there is a um, export uh, uh, inhibitor, um, selenexanor, that um, uh, is uh, hopefully it's in advanced testing and, and I think everybody is very excited about this. Uh, so I think that, that we all feel very hopeful that there are going to be a number of other drugs uh, available and, and there are certainly other targets that we think are being identified all the time. Do gene therapies or CAR-T therapies have a place in the landscape? There has been investigations into CAR T cell therapy for myeloma. Some of the initial uh, investigations were done looking at a target for CD19, and this doesn't appear to be as good a target as uh, we would like. So BCMA now appears to be uh, the target uh, of choice, and there was some terrific data presented at ASCO this year, uh, one from the Penn Group and also from China. Uh, indicating very high response rates and durable response rates in patients with relapsed myeloma receiving CAR-Ts aimed against BCMA. I think, uh, as uh, your audience may know, there are a number of commercial products that are being investigated for myeloma targeting BCMA. Uh, and uh, I know of three trials, as well as several centers are, are manufacturing their own CAR-Ts against myeloma. So I think most people feel that this is going to be uh, a terrific uh, uh, way to go. There are uh, there is uh, very good data that the uh, CLL drug and now, uh, and to a certain extent, the lymphoma drug, venetoclax, may have a role in a subpopulation of patients with myeloma who uh, carry the um, cyclin D1 mutation. Um, there is uh, uh, a whole other list of, of drugs, but I think CAR T cell therapy right now, by and large, patients who have had many, many therapies are being offered this treatment, we expect that this will probably be moved up, but whether this would be, for example, an intervention offered at the first relapse eventually or at the second relapse, um, I think a lot of people think that that may in fact happen. So I think these are, these are, are, are very exciting times because I think we're going to have more and more options for patients. Are there any other points you would like to make for our audience? Yeah, I think um, uh, one thing that I would uh, recommend is I do think that for uh, oncologists and hematologists in practice, as I tried to uh, sort out in this talk, for those early relapses, I think we have a lot of 
choices that that you can feel very confident ordering some of the triplets I mentioned, either uh, bortezomib based or lenalidomide based. But I think beyond that. Um, one should really be searching out perhaps maybe a myeloma center to talk about what trials might be available or you know what what kind of second or third line therapy might be reasonable is this time for a second transplant so I think that that's a, a, a time when bringing in perhaps an outside consultant uh, you know either in person or on the phone might be a very good uh, thing to consider um, a, a couple other points I'd just like to make quickly. When you really are deciding, if you will, uh, how bad, if I can use that term, a relapse is, it's often a very good idea to, to reassess the patient completely. And by that, not just saying, well, what is their M protein or their light chains, but considering imaging such as a PET scan, which sometimes can reveal much more extensive disease. Uh, we are very much at my institution uh, uh, encourage getting a second biopsy or bone marrow biopsy at that point to see how things are going. Um, Sometimes patients can have very little changes in their labs but end up carrying around a lot of myeloma. And again, for people who have those more aggressive relapses, that's a very important thing to know. Uh, I think in, in, you know, in summary, there are just a, a slew of drugs that I haven't even mentioned that are under investigation right now. And I think that we, what I tell my myeloma patients is we really think that we're going to continue to have more options. We still want to try to stretch that initial treatment out as far as we can in terms of the response. And now I think we're really trying to change, uh, to make that second intervention at the time of relapse last as many years as possible so that uh, we will have uh, healthier and stronger patients by the time that they really have to think about a second or third line intervention. All right. Thank you, Dr. Callender, for taking time out of your day to speak with us.